<laughs> Super jealous. That's going to be awesome. Uh, can't wait to hear, hear, hear your observations next week. And um, hopefully you guys will put, put some time away in the evenings to kind of give us the updates in between That's your true. drinking brewskis. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how sober the, uh, the evening <laughs> is going to be, but we'll do it. We'll do the best we can for sure. <laughs> well, I, I see the chat starting to fill up a little bit. Um, I mean, it looks like, you know, I see a lot of familiar people here. So if you've been following us for a couple of years, like there's nothing, there's nothing new that we're really going to talk about, I think, on this chat tonight. Um, but if anybody has any questions or anything, any other topic they want to talk about, obviously go ahead and request to speak and we'll, you know, we'll take that. It'll just be free flowing uh, chat tonight. Um, might spend a couple of minutes, I think, kind of talking about like reviewing the stuff that we definitely like most of us know by heart about Danchenko by now. Um, and we can touch on the um, motions and limine filing a little bit. Um, that was something that came out yesterday, I think. Um, so other than that, I mean, that's just sort of the game plan. It doesn't necessarily have to be a long chat, um, but you know, everybody that's on this chat is obviously very interested in the trial. So um, if you're looking for coverage next week, I mean, MB, make sure you're following him because he's going to be at the trial. Fool Nelson, like you said, is, is also going to be at the trial. So make sure you guys are following those guys right now. Um, we'll, we'll try to get their try to get them on Spaces chat as much as we can next week and, and hear from those guys that are going to be, you know, in the courtroom. So that's going to be awesome. Um, you know, Technofog is going to be on, on point. I mean, he's, he's always way ahead of everybody else. So um, definitely make sure, you know, you got your notifications all set up for Technofog next week. Um, another one, I like Rob Govea. And I, I don't know for sure that he's planning on covering the trial. I imagine he would. But I really like his YouTube channel. Um, and he does a phenomenal job. He always gets the transcripts really fast as well. And then he goes, if, it, if it's like the Sussman trial, he went through every single night and he broke down the transcripts. And I thought that was awesome. So I would definitely check out him as well. So uh, that's, core, that's sort of the game plan, right? Um, live tweeters, like if MB and Fool Nelson are both inside the courtroom, uh, Toria did a really nice job. Um, and then John at the epic times i'll i think i'll probably tweet those handles out because those are, are really good accounts to follow and they actually do like a, a really great job of live tweeting the the trial so i think both of them are planning on going and uh that'll be good as well so um what else were you talking about anything else any thoughts you had on any other thoughts you had on that mb no not so much but uh we're gonna you know see how things go and uh like I said, if we can uh, do as much as we can as far as live tweeting, but also uh, get some insider like uh, point of view stuff, I think people will be interested to see, uh, you know, non-professional, at least impressions of, you know, how the jury's reacting and how uh, uh, Danchenko's reacting. And uh, I'm, I'm really interesting just to see John Durham and see what is, you know, just his demeanor is. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. And uh, hopefully we can bring everybody some of that information as, as quick as we can get it. Awesome. That's going to be, that's going to be awesome. Um, and I love that you guys are going because it's so nice to have guys like you that, that know all the detail, know all the nuances. Um, and I, I think you'll find that once you're in the trial, you're going to pick up nuances that nobody else is going to be able to pick up. Like 
all the other journalists that are sitting in the media room or anybody else that's in the courtroom, they're just not going to have the full picture like you guys will. So that'll, that'll be great. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of um, special, you know, informations and, and insights that nobody else at that trial is going to be able to bring to us. So that'll be great. Um, like I said, I mean, we're not going to talk about anything new tonight, but um, we can do a brief review of Danchenko. Um, obviously, if anybody has questions or comments or anything they want to talk about, whether it's Danchenko or anything else Russiagate related, uh, we'll take that. And um, doesn't have to be a long chat, but you know, see how it goes. Um, so Igor Danchenko, by now, I think everybody probably knows he's the primary subsource of the Steel dossier. Um, he was indicted a year ago. Uh, he's got five counts. So obviously, like it, it's really surreal, right? Because for years we've been looking for this guy. We've been looking for the primary subsource to to the Steele dossier, and we finally find out who he is, and and he gets indicted. And you always felt like, okay, we, you know, this is so screwed up. You know, this indictment's going to be rock solid, and this guy's going to go to prison for what he did. But now we're we're sitting here on the eve of trial. And he's, he's indicted for five counts. And quite honestly, I mean, I think everybody should be prepared that an acquittal is very, very possible. Um, so count one, uh, that relates to his interactions with Chuck Dolan. And essentially, it, it's kind of a vague charge, to be honest. It's um, whether or not he had discussed dossier-related materials with Chuck Dolan um, and whether he was sort of involved in those events. And um, the premise of that charge is somewhat lukewarm. I mean, I think, um, you know, Danchenko's got a little bit of room to maneuver because the, the agents didn't really pin him down. And, that, you know, in truth, the FBI knew that Danchenko was talking to Dolan. So the real problem on that count, I think, is going to be materiality because the FBI already knew the truth. And, you know, there, you know, you're going to have to find an FBI agent that's going to testify that that impacted their investigation in some manner. And I just don't see that type of testimony coming, but you know, the, we are going to have some surprises. So we'll, we'll see. I don't I, right now sitting here right now. I, I don't see how really a conviction comes on that count. Counts two through five all relate to Sergey Milian and, um, you know, sort of a big problem is Sergey Milian is, is refusing to cooperate. Um, you know, everything he's been through, obviously, he, he completely has that right. He doesn't have to help Durham at all. Uh, but that's, that's going to be unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's going to be very hard, I think, or substantially harder, I think, for Dan Chenko to be convicted on those counts without Sergey Milian taking the stand and saying, you know, no, I never called this guy. Um, but as it happens, uh, Durham's going to get in some evidence that uh, Sergey Emilian never knew this guy. So um, it, it's sort of going to be the same thing where, yes, you know, Durham's going to be able to t pull up the call records and the call logs, and he's going to be able to show that Dan Chaco never got a call around that time. Um, he can certainly show evidence that, that will show that Sergey Emilian never called this guy. But um, was it material? You know, that's going to be a harder case to make because Sergey Emilian had a counterintelligence investigation into him. You know, obviously they're already looking at Sergey Emilian quite a bit. And you have to show that it's likely to impact a reasonable FBI agent. 
um, the omission or the inclusion of, of certain information. That's, that's the threshold of materiality is that it has the capacity to change decisions. And I, I don't know what decision would really be changed. I mean, um, you know, if, <laughs> with everything that happened in January with Danchenko, um, basically blown up the whole steel dossier. And then two months later, they made him a confidential human source. So, I, I mean, how does him pinning it all on Sergey Million really, um, you know, where's the, where's the materiality threshold? I mean, where's the indication that something would have changed? I, I just don't see a conviction coming on those counts. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but, but I, I just want everybody to be prepared. Like I don't want to pound the table and say, yeah, we're going to get, you know, at least one in, one conviction on, on any of this stuff and then have everybody be upset, which I'm sure a lot of people will be, but <laughs> MB, I don't know if you have any thoughts, but go ahead and jump in. Yeah. Um, it's really a tough road for, for uh, Durham. And some of this is like last minute stuff. Like the, we don't know when he found out when uh, Danchenko, when, when Durham found out that Danchenko had been a FBI uh, CHS, uh, we are thinking that it was probably very recently, like maybe this summer, which, you know, he's been preparing this case for months and months. And all of a sudden he has to deal with this fact. Um, Sergey not testifying was something I, that I believe was an ongoing negotiation. And, you know, Sergey, you know, late in, in the day was decided he's, he's not going to come here. He's not going to do it. And I, I do not blame him at all. Everything he's been through that and, and his distrust that he has of our justice system uh, I, I can't blame him. I mean, he's a loyal American, but he's being treated like a criminal for all these years and he might get off the plane and be arrested by uh, the, you know, the justice department, who knows, or by the FBI. So it, it's, uh, I, I, I don't disagree that uh, uh, Durham has a tough case here, but a lot of this he knew about, you know, beforehand, he knew that Steele was not going to be someone that he would bring in to testify. And if he didn't, uh, wrap him up in a conspiracy case or something like that, then he was going to have to deal with them as I'm not charging this guy, but also he's not here to testify. So how do I explain that to the jury? How do I uh, say that? Well, we're, you know, we want to tell you that everything uh, Danchenko told Steele was stuff we're going to present to you. Well, how do we know Steele wasn't lying? That's, you know, those type of details are things that I think the defense are going to really harp on and go, look, you have to get to beyond a reasonable doubt when there's all these reasonable doubts. Um, so I, I think it's going to be tough, although it seems like, like, like you said, Undead, that on its face, these seem like very obvious lies. And they were. They were lies. But the materiality of did the FBI care that he was lying? Were they happy that he lied? Were they thrilled that he would just go along with the things they want to be true? I, you know, the, all it takes is a, the jury decides materiality. It's up to them to decide what's material. So uh, I, I think it's going to be tough, but it's going to be really interesting because, you know, that. Durham, this is his probably his last hurrah. So let's see what he pulls out. <laughs> I I hope I hope it's not his last trial. Um, obviously, that's been reported. I I really hope that they're wrong. Um, but yeah, it, it very well might be the the last that we see of Durham. And um, I think on the bright side, we are going to find out some some really important pieces of information. Um, I think we could we're you know. Presumably, we're going to be able to find out who the handlers were for Igor Danchenko and who approved him as, to become a paid confidential human source. And 
hopefully we're going to learn all about the interactions with between him and the FBI. And I think the defense actually wants to make that part of their case. So, you know, the, the defense is going to point to all these supposed um, investigations that Igor Danchenko was helping with or things of that nature. But through, you know, both the prosecution and the defense, I think we're going to learn a lot about, um, you know, it's going to be pretty damning for the FBI, I imagine. Um, you know, I want to know who the handler with, is for sure. Um, because we also have the statements to the FISA court in mid 2018, where um, it's been pointed out by a few people where the FBI said, you know, they had no control over the primary subsource. Well, <laughs> that's not true. I mean, that's a blatant, egregious lie because he was a paid CHS. So they absolutely had control over him. Um, and they also uh, had contained in that same letter to the FISA court that um, maintained he was, you know, truthful and honest and omitted everything that he had told them that um, ripped apart the dossier. So it's pretty insane. I mean, we're going to, we're going to find out some good information. I, I just don't know. And hopefully we get some signals um, to the point that MD just raised. I mean, is Durham done or is this finally a stepping stone to, you know, indictments at the FBI or something else? I mean, I, I'd really hate to get to the end of this trial and see Danchenko acquitted and then have all the left-wing media ripping him apart and then find out he's done, but you know, get more evidence and more indications that support additional indictments at the FBI. And you know, one of the things we're going to find out about is this interview with Ivan Vronsov, where the FBI went to Moscow. They pulled this guy out of the Spazo house um, at some party and they interviewed him and you know, it's never been reported on or anything, but I think the general indication is that Bronsov basically shot down everything that was attributed to him. And um, you know, he was asked all about Danchenko and that's, that's going to come out at trial for sure. So, you know, that that's going to be another indication of, you know, why didn't the FBI stop? Um, so any other thoughts, MB? Yeah, those are those are mostly my thoughts as well. And as far as what happens after this trial, it's if there's a conviction, um, I think that Durham has more legs politically. Uh, if there is an acquittal, I think he's going to have a lot of trouble because anything he would do afterwards is going to be viewed through the lens of this is a guy that is throwing charges at people. They're being acquitted. He's not to be trusted. He's political. He is basically everything we know Mueller to be will be the way they paint that, you know, the, the media is going to paint uh, Durham even more so than he is now. But, you know, if you're winning things and you're convicting people, it's one thing, but if you have no momentum, it's going to be really, really tough politically to keep going. Uh, no matter how good your evidence is. And especially it's going to be hard that you just spent two trials saying, hey, the FBI was duped. Uh, these people are terrible. They fooled the FBI. And then turn around and go, well, actually, they weren't duped. They were in on it. They were, you know, happy to carry water for uh, political campaigns and commit crimes while doing so. I think it's going to be really, really hard for him to have the political cachet to keep going at that point. So uh, it, it, we've talked about this a ton. And, you know, uh, the, the, really hard thing is that 
when you lose these little fish things that, you know, do we really care about Sussman? Do we really care about Danchenko? Do we want them, you know, to be convicted of these crimes that are, you know, they probably wouldn't have gone to prison for it in, even if they do get convicted when losing them means that we lose the entire campaign that, that, you know, people stop paying attention, people stop taking Durham seriously and whatever he reports, whatever he comes out with after that is just not taken seriously because, people were acquitted and that's the headline is this guy was acquitted that guy was acquitted so why should we keep listening yeah i I think that's spot on um and i was also looking at technofog's preview of the trial and and of course it's brilliant as everything that comes out of technofog is um but i thought he raised some really interesting points of additional things we might be watching for at the trial next week um he recalled these filings and it's been you know months and months since Sturm had put this out there that noted uh, you know the Clinton campaign and and one citation that Technofog pulled out of this filing was you know uh, the extent to which the Clinton campaign and or its representatives directed solicited or controlled Danchenko's activities and I think that's a really really interesting thing um, you know, that hasn't developed at, at all since Durham put that out there. But um, I think Technofog made the point. I mean, if that was a red herring, it seems like Danchenko's lawyers would have actually ripped that apart. Um, so I, I thought that was brilliant for Technofog to pull out because, um, you know, we have this conflict right now in that the indictment discusses what Dolan had said. It doesn't make any conclusory statements, but it said something to the fact that um, Dolan had said that the Clinton campaign didn't know anything about what um, you know, he and Danchenko were discussing. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't go too far into the waters. And then we get this filing a little bit after that, I think, where um, you know, Durham actually hints at this, this connection with the Clinton campaign. And you know, that's going to feed the the argument, you know, it'll be a never ending argument until it actually ends. Right. Um, you know, is Durham done or not? If we, we get into the trial and there's indications that the Clinton campaign knew something or they coordinated with Danchenko or something like that, everybody's going to be like, well, Durham's not done. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll just have to see what develops next week. I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch for though. You know, something I've been thinking about just with these two cases is how we got to where we are. Um, and that uh, talking to King this afternoon, I think his take was that um, that that uh, conflict of interest argument was possibly made, maybe probably made that if Danchenko were to uh cooperate or, or was it Sussman? Was, if someone was to flip and cooperate, it was Sussman. Um, look, you're going to have these conflicts. Uh, so your lawyer may not have your best interest in mind. That's why we think this is a problem. Uh, and I, I think that that made sense because these two little piddly charges would seem to be, look, we're going to charge you with this, or you could just cooperate with us and tell us who told you to do what, when, and then this all goes away and you're a hero. And that obviously didn't happen. And maybe it was because they didn't you know, levy big enough charges on these guys like the Mueller campaign did with throwing around, you know, all these felonies and, you know, you go to jail for 20 years if you don't play ball. Uh, Instead, we have these little, you know, 
they're not misdemeanors, but they're, you know, relatively, you know, not big charges. Um, so no one flipped over as far as we know. Um, and that I think maybe the fatal flaw is maybe Durham just hasn't played the kind of hardball that the other side seems to be playing where it's like, we're going to come after you. We're going to come after your family. We're going to ruin your life. If you don't, you know, sing from the hymnal that we need you to sing from. Um, and maybe that's where that, that, that uh, stuff came from that they were assuming that someone was going to cooperate with them. And unfortunately, as far as we know, or, you know, the, these guys are not, have not obviously flipped over, have not cooperated. And that, screwed up the entire trajectory of what Durham was trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I think I saw King post this the other day and I, I've kind of been thinking about it the same way. I mean, when that motion in limine came out yesterday and Durham, you know, he lost it for the most part. I mean, everything, you know, there's some stuff that clearly wasn't going to come in. Um, but I think there's a couple pieces that I think he was definitely hoping to, to bring in. Um, the Ritz-Carlton allegations. I think that was something that he was hoping to bring in um, where he had a manager from the Ritz-Carlton that he was going to have take the stand and basically testify um, around this allegation of, of the, the tape, right? And uh, that's not coming in at all. I think that that's a bad loss for Durham. I think everything else could have gone either way. Um but I think that one in particular, I think Durham was hoping to bring in. Um, and then maybe the statement about fabricating sources, that uh, email he had sent to uh, St. Sadar, or however you pronounce it. Uh, that was probably something else he was hoping to bring in as well. But, um, you know, that's rough. Anyway, my point, I think, in, in bringing that up um, was going to be, I mean, it, it comes to a certain point where these false statement charges are so narrow that, you have to exclude all this evidence. And, and King posted this earlier today where, you know, if he charged a conspiracy, you wouldn't have this, this situation where all this evidence is being excluded from trial because you could bring this in. If it was a conspiracy case, all this would come in. It's not even a question. Um, and, it, and it actually sort of handcuffs him to um, a more challenging case. I mean, especially in the situation with our FBI being as corrupt as it is, you know, it's really hard to show, you know, the difference between a, a reasonable agent, which is the standard, whether or not the, the omission or the inclusion of information would change the decision for a reasonable FBI agent, because you have to, you have to flush out like, okay, what's a reasonable FBI agent? And okay, here's all the corrupt FBI agents. And then I, you know, I can't really attack them. Um, as Durham, I can't go after this, these FBI agents because, that sort of undermines materiality. Um, but I have to like differentiate, like it, it's really complicated in, in the situation and the fact pattern that we have, I think for Durham to make his case. And if he just charged a conspiracy, it, it would be easier. And I, there's so many questions out there. And, and obviously we could speculate about this for, for years. I mean, he, he had that filing, right? I mean, that's what he seemed to be heading towards um, during the Sussman case, you know, he had that motion that blew up everywhere where he started talking about a joint venture conspiracy and everybody, including me, maybe especially me was like, okay, well, this is like the stepping stone, right? Like, okay, Durham's, Durham's doing it. Um, and the joint venture conspiracy, you know, it's not necessarily a, cons a criminal 
conspiracy, but it is multiple groups working towards a common goal. And I, I really thought like that was the stepping stone, like that was the moment and nothing's really developed. So, um, you know, if Durham just walks away after all this time, especially after savaging, you know, Ronnie Joffe as he did, I think Joffe has a right to be upset. I mean, Durham ripped apart in filings for a year. And then um, if he just packs it all up and, and goes home, I think uh, Joffe probably has a right to be upset, um, especially with all the speculation that, that those filings kind of spurred. Um, we might have to apologize to the guy. <laughs> but, um, you know, sort of the same thing with Danchenko. I mean, my goodness, you, you take a step back and you look at what actually happened and you, you talk about, you know, they, they used all this evidence in the FISA warrants. They spied on Trump. They um, used it to substantiate and further uh, investigation that really had no predication at all. Um, and, and in the wake of overwhelming evidence that told them the opposite, that they should have actually shut everything down. And then we get through everything and it's like, yeah, uh, five counts, four of them are, you know, he said it received a call and he didn't receive a call. And the other count is like a very general, vague count about whether or not he talked to Chuck Dolan about the dossier. And it's like, that's it. Like, that's what you could get out of, you know, a three, three and a half year investigation. Um, so that, I don't know, like the verdict's still out. If Durham packs it up after this, I think everybody has a right to be upset. So sort of rambled there. Anything else you have, Andy? Yeah, just, you know, it's neither here nor there, but the Dolan charge, all, all these charges have kind of little details that are going to be really tricky. And like the Dolan charge, the, the, de- the defense seems to be making the claim that, no, 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 he was asked if he spoke to uh, if Dan Shako spoke to Dolan about, uh, you know, working for uh, uh, not Fusion GPS, but Orbis uh, and uh, Dan Shanko's defense is no, well, yeah, uh, we emailed, but you didn't ask me if we emailed. You asked if we spoke. And, uh, you know, according to the filings, at least right now, Durham's making an argument. That, well, yeah, but that means the same thing. And it's like, well, the jury probably is going to have their own opinion. So. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of little details like that, that it's really going to come down to how the jury looks at this, you know, with their own opinions and backgrounds and, you know, biases that we all have. And that's going to probably decide this case, whether it's, you know, the, the hung jury, we haven't even talked about that, but, you know, getting to a, getting to, you know, a unanimous verdict might be really hard in this case because of all these little details. So that, you know, if, if I had to, you know, lay a little bit money down right now, I would say, you know, hung jury is really, really in the cards. Yeah, I had not even thought about that. Um, that that certainly is a possibility. <laughs> um, you know, especially as polarized as we are as a country. I mean, it, it's entirely possible for the, you know, two different people to look at the same fact pattern and listen to the exact same testimony and think about it completely differently. We see that every day in our country now. So, Mr. Caputo, how you doing? Hey, how you guys doing? Doing good. How are you? Good, good, good. I haven't been on a space for a while. I thought I'd listen in. Um, I wanted to uh, make sure, I don't know, anybody who's interested, uh, 
to understand the provenance of Igor Donchenko, you know, where he comes from and the system that he's come up into and within to emerge as this, you know, major player in a trial that's about to kick off. You know, um, I, I was, uh, after George H.W. Bush lost in 92, um, uh, it was just after uh, the, the, you know, there was a late uh, in his administration um, uh, summit between him and Yeltsin. And it was there where I met the foreign minister, uh, Andrei Kozarev. And uh, after Clinton was elected, uh, they came up with this magical, huge, multi-billion dollar aid package to transition Russia to democracy. And part of that aid package was an International Foundation for Election Systems project, uh, which I was brought in to direct. And I moved in 1994 uh, to Moscow on at the behest of the Clinton administration. As a Republican, it was an unusual position. But my job was to start what we called Rock the Vote Russia. Well, I was one of many people involved in starting Rock the Vote for MTV here in the United States, getting young people to vote. And in Russia, young people were the only answer to communism because the older population was voting communist and all of them were voting. And the younger population was pro-democracy and none of them were voting. So my job when I moved to Russia was to start Rock the Vote. So my part of that job was to fly around the country and establish campus-based organizations, Rock the Vote Russia organizations, to try to encourage more pro-democracy voters to vote in the presidential election in 1996. It took me around the country. There are 89 states. It's a lot of travel. And uh, one of the places I went to was Perm. And every place I went, I would arrive, I'd be rec- you know, welcomed by local officials. I would be taken over to the university and they would have what they called a forchette, which is a reception in Russian. Basically a big table filled with all the local specialties the table breaking with, you know, salted fish and vodka, etc. In Perm, uh, at that reception at the Forchette in Perm, I first met Igor Danchenko, who was a very, I don't remember, he was very young. One of many of the young people that were running around this Rock the Vote Russia project. And he was dying to get in as the director of Rock the Vote Russia in Perm. Um, and he pitched it at me. Uh, I came there to make a speech about Rock the Boat Russia. I met this kid. And uh, uh, one of my close friends and advisors, Boris Bogodatsky, who had spent a lot of time in Camp Siberia uh, uh, during the Soviet times, told me that he didn't like this kid at all and that I should stay away from him. Um, Boris, who's passed away some years now, is one of the smartest men I ever met. And he only told me that twice. He told me to stay away from Igor Danchenko at a conference in Perm. And later on, he told me to stay away from Deputy Mayor of St. Petersburg. Actually, earlier on, he told me to stay away from the Deputy Mayor of St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin. Danchenko was really thirsty. He was begging to get into the USAID projects in Russia, there were there was almost a billion dollars being spent there with USAID funding. The International Republican Institute, the National Democrat Institute, all these standbys in Virginia 
uh, we were all doing pro-democracy projects. Our project was the election system, trying to develop it and trying to encourage young people to vote. Um, I didn't hear anything about Igor Donchenko after turning him down to run a rock the boat Russia perm um, until I read about him and all of this revelatory stuff that came out of this corner. I mean, I think you guys, some of you guys were on uh, when I was on a another Zoom, or another uh, spaces where I was listening mostly. And uh, I first started hearing about Donchenko. And it reoccurred to me and occurred to me again and again who this young man was. And I can tell you, um, I've seen so many of these young men and women who came out of not just Russia, but Ukraine and Germany and Somalia and, you know, Chile and Argentina from all over the world where the United States State Department through their USAID and other funding has been recruiting compliant and interesting young people um and my i have to believe the donchenko because later on i found out because i was uh uh it was after i found out that he was part of this whole problem that this corner revealed i found out that he does a usaid funded uh, uh election observer under i think the international republican institute of uh, the next election cycle so he was, in fact, brought into the USAID fold. And knowing Don Chico and how thirsty he was, and by the way, completely ignorant of how thirsty he looked, it was so obvious. He's been working for the United States government one way, shape, or form ever since 1996-97 when he was first out there with his hands out trying to get picked by all of us who were out there divvying up USAID contracts among Russians. He's been around a long, long time. To think that he just showed up on the scene, that's naive. And, and from my perspective, from when he was trying to get on board our operation, he got on board another funded by the United States government, he's undoubtedly never, ever left. And sure, he was a confidential human source for the FBI for a short time. But if anybody thinks that was the beginning of the United States government relationship, with Igor Danchenko, I give you my experience in 1996. Fill in the blanks. Because you know one thing, Durham will not fill in those blanks. I'm going to stand by and listen. Yeah, no, I, I it's great that you're on here. I really wanted to ask you this question. Um, when I, saw, I think I saw you tweet um, something to that effect a little bit the other day and I'm, I'm happy to have you on to bring some color to it because I, I had a question. I mean, in 2006, I think it was Igor Danchenko was one of the people that basically accused Vladimir Putin of plagiarizing like a dissertation or something like that. And then supposedly in 2009 and 2010, Danchenko was, um, you know, preparing diplomatic packages and, um, trying to, to buy people's, you know, um, apparently trying to um, send some information to uh, Russian spies, basically, or, or recruit people, it sounds like. Um, and there's an investigation into them by the FBI. So um, I was wondering if you could share some insights. Like, you know, when he accused Putin of plagiarism in 2006, is it 
is it possible that he's still going to have ties to Russian intelligence three or four years later? Or do you think, like, do you think that's possible? Or do you think that's like a non-starter? Well, he, here's a couple of things. That's, that's, that's really interesting that you say that. I mean, when I understood, uh, uh, when I read his, uh, his, um, and then I understood this accusation of him having connections to Russian intelligence. Um, number one, if you've ever said at all about Vladimir Putin, you didn't like his tie, or you thought that his, you know, his speech was wooden, you don't return the favor. And if you're play- accusing. Vladimir Putin of plagiarism, like others in other uh, academic environments have accused him of uh, actual outright crimes. You never return to the fold. So when I see these accusations that uh, Donchenko was a Russian asset in one way, shape or form, I have to doubt them. I, I Listen, there are such things as two, you know, uh, you know, two and three bank shots to make a uh, you know, uh, to, to actually succeed. Uh, but I don't think this is one of them. I just, the, the Danchenko I remembered, I don't remember much about him. I had a couple of conversations. I mean, just another thirsty young kid looking to make a buck in, in 90s Russia, which was, by the way, it was like Paris in the 20s uh, with like, you know, Kalashnikovs and vodka. It was the craziest time of my life. I've never seen anything like it. This kid was coming up in that environment from Perm, you know, comparably a village, you know, compared to Moscow. This kid's out there trying to make a buck, right? I think he's, he's American intelligence. I think he's been a, an American intelligence asset for a long, long time. Remember, when he was recruited into this cabal, it was Strobe Talbot in charge. Remember that. So Talbot, who then went to the Brookings Institute, and every single person who you see who Donchenko has woven his career in and out of the fabric of the Brookings Institute. I think Donchenko has long been an American asset, and he's playing a role. That's super interesting. I... um. I hope we get to learn more about that at a trial because I know Fool Nelson has a fascinating theory that would actually tie in really well with that um, in that apparently, or um, there's an idea out there that Danchenko may have had a role in facilitating meetings between the U.S. government and um, Victor Bittner, uh, and that related to stolen NSA cyber tools um, that were sent to a hacking group called shatter brokers and if if that's true if if danchenko facilitated some of those meetings that would actually tie in really well because that was before um well before danchenko was a chs i I believe i have to take another look at the timeline chronology i i believe it was before he was a chs so that would mean um that he had to have some ties to u.s intelligence i mean you, you can't just start setting meetings between, you know, the U S government and, and people without having some, um, some ties there. So, um, that, 
that might be something to look for next week as well. That could be that could be really interesting. Uh, let's see. MB or anybody else have anything else? You know, uh, the Andrews Paul pointed out um, USAID. Is that Michael, in your opinion, what, what's your uh, thought on that as far as connections with the CIA, uh, especially in the recruitment realm? Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but that seems the kind of thing that maybe they'd be into. I've got a terrible connection. This is Caputo. Is, can anybody hear me? Yes, we got you. Okay, I wanted to apologize. I probably fell off earlier, but I wanted to sum, summarize everything I was saying that Donald uh, defense and uh, has been for a long time, and this is a dance. I, I, I've not thought Durham was going to be productive for my family and to return everything that we lost because of this uh, bogus Russiagate hoax. Um, and uh, I'm, my, my confidence is losing steam. Don Pico is a ploy. Uh, they're prosecuting one of their own. It's it's a it's pop prosecution. I don't like it at all. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. Um. I I hope we get to learn a little bit more uh, next week. I mean that that could very well be be the case. You know, and the other thing is. Uh... Felix Sater also said that Danchenko years and years ago, uh, I don't know, it was in the 90s, early 2000s, tried to cozy up to him, and he had the same impression of, I don't want anything to do with this guy. So that's two interesting data points of people that just felt like this is not a guy to be involved with, and that, that they're in both those worlds is pretty amazing. Hey, Regina. How's it going? Great. How are you? Good. I just wanted to say hi to Mike Caputo. You were so lucky to have you here. And your your insight is just amazing. Thanks, Regina. It's nice to hear your voice. Um, I'm like so fascinated with what you're talking about um, with... Danchenko in 92 there and I was thinking about uh, Michael McFall he was in NDI in 92 um, and he I remember reading his book Cold War Hot Peace and uh, he was really good friends with like Strobe Talbot back then you know, who was like Deputy Secretary of State to Bill Clinton like and he was young and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, when you're talking about Igor being close to, like, the Republican side and all these characters that decades, you know, we're talking 30 years later together still. It's really wild. Yeah, I was uh, on the USAID uh train over there at the same time that uh, McFall was we were um, every week there was a briefing at the embassy which the CIA attended 
with all the USAID contractors, me representing the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, our job was to, to design, to actually write uh, the first draft of the Russian General Election Code and the Ukrainian General Election Code. And we all, International Republican Institute, National Democrat Institute, all the different, uh, you know, NGOs that were taking uh, USAID money. We all met every week. And in there was uh, McFall. Um, and he was, you know, kind of a, he would oppose some of the things that I would say. But you can imagine during the the Clinton administration, I was the one of two Republicans in the room. The other one was the chairman of the International Republican Institute. And me, everybody else was handpicked Democrats who supported Clinton. But uh, I, I can tell you that uh, from my perspective, you know, everything there that was being run during those days, because the CIA was in the room, and because uh, all of these people were feeding, you know, people like Danchenko into the, into the, into the, you know, kind of stream of things. You know, uh, in some way, shape, or form, and just as, as deeply as as Ambassador McFall was involved, I mean, he was considered a Brahmin of our gang in those days because he was the PhD in the room. He was Stanford, I guess it, it was. And uh, NDI, National Democrat Institute, and other Democratic organizations ruled the roost in that room. So McFall kind of held court in there. But I mm-hmm. got to respect him because he's really smart, really very smart. And frankly, even though he'll support some of the most stupid things you'll see out of the Democrat administrations, McFall is not a liar. If you actually call him on the carpet and you have him on TV and you go up against him and you, you ask him the right questions, you corner him, he will tell the truth. He's wired uh. and he's a Democrat spinmeister. But McFall is an intellectual more than anything. He understands the bottom line of most of this stuff. Yeah, like, um, but, but he did say the other day when they were talking about bringing ukraine into nato and he would talk about he's like well we did you see that when he's like well we lie we lie um and laughing i don't know he he rubs me the wrong way but we we were both there when when uh, all that went down we were but we were both serving in russia at the same time when crimea was award was awarded to ukraine against against russia i mean all those times when this all these spoils were being divvied up He's got a lot of uh, a lot of knowledge, but he's a, he's a leftist Democrat, and he's going to pursue the Bidens. He's going to spin the Biden spin. But I wanted to just that was really wild when you were talking about um, those years when you were talking about Talbot and Danchenko and uh, his ties to the Republican side, and just found that so interesting. You know, with later on meeting up with Strobe at Brookings Institution, and of course we know. Strobe was talking to Steele in August, offering his help, you know, 2016. And you just see how these guys are just all related. It's it's just sad, you know, that. Well, when I was in low- 2016, when the first release came up in the Hillary Clinton campaign, I think it was like early July of 2016, um, when they were re- listing all of the Trump uh, uh advisors who had close ties to Russia. There were four of us or five of us. I was one of those four, you know, um, uh, we had a discussion about that immediately uh, with some pretty elevated intelligence about who provided that information, to the Hillary campaign. And, and we were told at that time 
uh, then it was it involved uh, Strobe Talbot. Uh, Strobe at that time was chairman of the Brookings Institution, or had just left one of the two, and that it was all wrapped around the Strobe Talbot axle that he had developed a strategy for the Hillary campaign, and uh, this grew out of his brain, you know, you know, his brainchild. It was his brainchild. You never really heard Strobe Talbot ever again, but it has, I've never stopped thinking about the fact that in the earliest days of the strike on me and Manafort and Stone and others, Strobe Talbot's name was most closely tied to it. Yeah. And then, you know, he came up um, with his communications with Steele. You know, those came out in the uh, Steele versus the Gubaroff in, in London. So he did offer his services to Steele in August. Like, it was basically saying, hey, whatever you need. You know, Weiner told me or something, you know, with John Weiner and stuff. It's just I, I guess that's the most frustrating thing. You see this blatantly overt actions to sabotage and we get this stupid five counts aligned to the FBI. I don't know. It's so frustrating. But anyways, I'll let you guys keep going. I just wanted to say thank you, Mike, for everything. And you're you're brilliant. And brave and, and i'm sorry everything you guys went through yeah i'm i'm all good regina you're very kind and and, and i appreciate the overstatement but my family and i we had to leave buffalo because of uh threats and um we got in so many of them and this where i grew up where i wanted my children to grow up and we bailed uh last year and moved to south florida where um if antifa comes here they'll be eaten by a bear <laughs> or and, a crocodile <laughs> or a crocodile or a florida or panther. alligator i don't know what's the correct yeah. thing in florida right but i mean we I, I can tell you that um i think this is going the way that i thought it was going to go my family paul manafort's family roger stone's family jd gordon's family god bless carter page and his family he's fighting for truth you know most of us have just like kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that the deep state is never going to disgorge the people who did this to all of us. You know, they went after after Donald Trump and they found out that he was willing to spend any of his billions and hire the best lawyers in the world to defend himself and they couldn't get him. So they went after his kids. And they yeah. found out that Donald Trump was willing to spend that same money on his kids and that wasn't going to be it wasn't going to work out for him. So they went for people who they perceived were his friends. And I got caught up in that snare, and me and my family. And how and long dozens. were you not not able to talk to your best friend? Yeah, Roger Stone and I weren't able to speak for eighteen months. 18 and God months. bless Roger Stone. I went to every single day of Roger Stone's trial. One of my best friends. I haven't spoken to him for over a year. And every day he walked in, he hadn't spoken to me in over a year, and he wondered if I was there because I found out later. The prosecution was telling him I was there to testify. I went every day to listen. I hadn't even been interviewed uh, by the Mueller investigation uh, since my first interview regarding Roger. And they told him on more than one occasion that I was there to testify against him. I was there because I wanted to watch and stand there for my friend Roger. 
I didn't find out that till a week later that they were telling it. So all, the whole time, my my one of my best friends thought any minute they were going to call me up to the stage, up to the <laughs> stand, and 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 testify against them. I was just there to make sure they didn't screw him, and they did anyway. You know, God bless yeah. Roger Stone. You know, God bless him. You know, well, thank I, you. I want to say thank you for everything, and thank you, Foya, for doing this. Um, I'll see some people at the trial next week. Hey, cover it for me. I'm not going. I'm staying down here in Florida. It's getting beautiful. <laughs> All right. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to see what you have for us next week, Regina. Um, Chris, I see you have your hand up. How's it going, man? Good. Um, so I wanted to say hey to the room. I've been following the um, Durham stuff uh, for a long time. And... Uh, and if it if it does end this way, it's going to be highly disappointing. Um, but since um, um, Mr. Caputo was in the room, I was listening to him talk, and he started to talk about NDI. And so I was curious um, what your opinion is, knowing the pipeline of NDI to um, you know the deep state into especially the intelligence communities. And you see people like um, Mika Brzezinski and, you know, obviously the heads of the, um, you know, the DSCC, you know, certain certain consultants there that are heavily influential. Um, and, of course, the Clinton machine, uh, just how deeply rooted the NDI operatives from the era you're referencing um, are now in play with what's going on. Um, not just against Trump and Trump's allies and the people who have been pretty vocal as it relates to um, uh, their knowledge of the corruption that took place over in Eastern Europe, specifically in Ukraine, and then, of course, the influence of China, um, but also the stuff that's taking place against the, the Americans, you know, where we have, a, uh, you know, a militarized propaganda weapon of war that's been privatized by Stanley, um, Stanley uh, McChrystal. And um, and of course the Smith Munn Act that's taking place now on um, television, you know, in cable television where propaganda is now allowed for the last. I mean, what I guess it's been the last six years. So just kind of curious about your take on that kind of influence, and of course it all it culminated with the um, Disinformation Council, who was NDI. Uh, I can't remember her name. Uh, kind of just curious about your take, Mr. Kudo. Uh, <laughs> uh, just between us. <laughs> yeah, the NDI is a bunch of communists. I, I got to tell you, I had to sit through meeting after meeting after meeting where just because I had come from, I was director of media uh, services for the uh, Bush, H.W. Uh, Bush re-election campaign. And I went from there after a year or so over to Russia on USAID and they had fought me coming over there. Uh, they didn't want it because I was a Bush guy and these are all Clinton people. Uh, when I got there, the NDI activists who were on the ground there, they were, they were a, a burr in my saddle for the entire year. I was there and worked for the United States government. And after that, these people, these strange Rangers at, uh, at the national Democrat Institute would pop up here and there 
no matter where I was in Moscow politics, because I stayed an additional six years after I left the U.S. government employee. Um, and then, in, in, you know, 10 years later, you know, eight years later, I worked in, in Ukraine uh, on behalf of a candidate. And the NDI people popped their heads up there and were, and, and were uh, politicking against me. You know, you see these people get sucked up into the uh, into the Borg of the national security complex. Um, and, and it seems to me that every single person I've spoken to at the National Democrat Institute seems to have somehow made their way into the national security sector. And yet very, so very few people at the International Republican Institute, the Republican counterpart, of the National Democrat Institute. So very few of them end up making it into the national security apparatus. Um, USAID is a, is a funding operation for national, for U.S. intelligence services. And a lot of what they do by funding people like the National Democrat Institute and people like Igor Danchenko, is, it, it ends up being a lot more about national security than it does about, uh, about, uh, uh, international development. But does it does it trouble you that you see these names that you you and I both know were involved in NDI back in the um, early two thousands or even um, tail end you know of the mid two thousands in the Obama regime uh, when when Ukraine you know the um, color revolution and all that stuff does it bother you how influential they are now in the media? Not in, of course, in our national intelligence sector, but on the media as well. Yeah, it does. You know, I uh, I shot a film uh, for OAN called um, uh, called the Ukraine Hoax. It's on Rumble for free, and I wrote a book accompanying it, which basically filled out the entire story called Ukraine Hoax, which is available on Amazon. And and throughout there, I, I see the NDI activists. Who end up surrounding Victoria Newland and and these people? I mean, I, it bothers me a great deal. But I have to tell you, as somebody who comes to this, I, I think honestly, you know, I, I grew up in a in kind of a trailer park, and I went into the United States Army from high school because I got kicked out in my senior year. I came uh, out of the army and went to university, and then went on into politics from there. I went in uh, a patriot. Uh, from the United, uh, from the 25th Infantry Division, and, and arrived in Washington, a bright-eyed speechwriter for Jack Kemp. And by the time I interviewed, I, I was interrogated by the Mueller investigation. I had lost all faith, and all the air was out of all my tires in my belief in my country being superior. You know, I used to travel around Russia for six years and give speeches at universities and other venues all around the, the nation, 89 states, and give speeches about how you needed to model your democracy after the United States of America. I would not give that speech anywhere ever again because our democracy is lesser than most. And certainly if I ever gave that speech in, you know, Irkutsk today, even the Eskimos of Irkutsk, would laugh at me for saying it because the United States election system is fatally flawed now. And we're so, it's almost, the, the irony of all this coming back around to the Russia that the Clintons sent me to in 1995 
that irony is not lost on me. In the end, it all came around and kicked us in the ass, didn't it? All the work we did to subvert the Russian elections in the 90s to try to guide the democracy of Russia by backing candidates that didn't have what the Russians believed to be the best interests of Russia at heart. All the work we did to meddle in Russia's elections in the 90s. And now here we are. The chickens are come home to roost. That's where we are. Well, thank you, Mr. Caputo, for taking my questions. And by the way, if you're going to South, if you're in South Florida now, that's basically like the warm neighborhood in Buffalo. <laughs> it's all, it's all right. from Buffalo. <laughs> you're right. I, I have the people around you. I know for years. <laughs> that's cool, man. Well, I do appreciate you taking my questions, sir. When are you going to write another book, Michael? You know, I I, uh, I had written a... It's funny, you know, because uh, I, I think most people know that uh, the Biden uh, National Security Office insinuated that the film I made for the... Uh, uh, for One American News um, was funded by Russian intelligence or people related to Russian intelligence. I, I, and they didn't use my name or say the name of OAN or my film, but they made it really sound like it was... Our film. It was just the same thing of saying that the Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian, you know, uh, Russian uh, the disinformation. They did the same thing to my film, you know. Uh, yeah. But I, I went to uh, I went to Ukraine in. Uh, I just got this crazy idea because um, I wanted to try my hand at documentary film. I went to Ukraine in August of 2019 to do a film about uh, what happened on the Maidan in 2014 after the, Ru you know, and then the Russian invasion thereafter and who was responsible for it. Cause I know for a fact, the United States government is guilty of many things in 2014, like they're guilty of many things today all around the world. That's the way it rolls. Right. But I tried to explain it in that film. And then uh, I went to Ukraine. I was on a, I was on a deadline for a book, uh, with my publisher on my life and what happened leading up to the Russian investigations and everything else. And, uh, and then I went and shot this film. I went to Kiev, Ukraine and Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, where I interviewed some people who were accused of, uh, of being the snipers on the Maidan in 2014. And my, my point in the film was that, you know, America has been poking and prodding at Ukraine and making money of it for so many years. People, you know, politicians like Joe Biden and his family making money. It's not just Joe Biden, but it's Hunter. And uh, that was the point of the film. And that was the, I got back and I called my publisher. I said, this book about my life and about my time in Russia, it's going to have to be delayed a couple of weeks because I just uh, got back from Ukraine where I was filming, shooting this film uh, on, uh, you know, U.S.-Ukraine relations and how it relates to Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. And my publisher said, when did you get home? I said, just this morning. He said, have you not seen the news? I said, what do you mean? He said, get in, look at the news. The president is about to be, I think they're going to impeach him because of you, a phone call he had with Zelensky. Turns out I arrived in Ukraine to, film, to shoot my film where I had an appointment to film Zelensky, by the way. And right before I got there, that, that phone call went down between uh, Trump and Zelensky so when I got there in Ukraine, everybody in politics in Ukraine, I've been there many times. They all knew who I was. 
thought I was there because of things that were going down between Trump and Zelensky that I knew nothing about. And I was like, Zelensky was on. We were going to interview him. He was off. He was canceling. In the end, I never interviewed him. But I came back and my publisher said, look, drop that book about yourself and write about Ukraine. So I wrote a book called Ukraine Hoax, which is on Amazon. And anyway, long way around the barn, about six months ago, I called my publisher. I said, so should I go back and do that other book? And he said, ah, no, I don't think anybody read it. So yeah, read my, it. yeah short, short answer, no, probably not going to, unless, unless I find a publisher, I'm probably just going to sit here in Florida and fish. <laughs> well, your first book and your documentary were amazing. They were so good. I'd tell everyone to read them. And I want to hear your and read your second book. And I want to know about the kidnapping in El Salvador. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's actually in the in the, uh, that book was actually more than two thirds done when I when I dropped it to do the Ukraine book. So it's just sitting there. You're very kind, Regina. Thank you very much. Hey, Walkerfire, I see you slipped in there. How you doing tonight? Hey, Undead, doing well, doing well. Um, pretty interesting spaces so far. Glad I could glad I could pop in for a few minutes. Um, I had a r- real quick question for for Michael, if if you don't mind. Uh, you know, I know I know you've talked a lot about you know your your interactions with with Henry Greenberg, and um, I always found that aspect fascinating, especially how how we never got to learn much more about it other than. Um, what you were able to tell us, um, they, they basically covered everything else up. Uh, but I did want to uh, know if you could give us a little bit more insight on um, some of the other interactions you had. Um, I know, uh, I believe that CNN had had a, a story um, with you about uh, that the NSA contractor, uh, friends with, with uh, Mr. Bell, um, but at least in your 302 that they released you know, a couple of years ago, everything about that is, is redacted, of course. Um, and, and if you are able and willing to, to shed any, any light on that story, um, I think we would all find that very, very fascinating. So you're going to have to refresh me because I haven't read that for a while, but you're talking about an NSA contractor. Yeah, there was a, a CNN story. They, they apparently had access to, to text messages and, and, um, correspondence between you and, and Kirk Bell about uh, uh, Kirk Bell was talking with a, a contractor about uh, the, the Clinton's missing emails or it may have had to do with, with the, uh, the Clinton Foundation um, and the contractor which CNN didn't name um, but he, he went to CNN, he talked to them and, and gave them some statements and stuff um, but, but clearly CNN was cherry picking um, you know what they were going to publish and, and what they weren't going to publish. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Let, let, I, I got to tell you, um, yeah, I recall this directly, and, and and that's pretty much the extent of it. But uh, if you were in Trump Tower in 2016, you know, I that was my I don't know, it was my seventh presidential campaign, fourth one in the United States, and uh, um. There's always over the transom people calling, oh, I'm, you know, anonymous person from so-and-so. I have a breakout scandal uh, that's going to stop the campaign of your opponent. And that comes across the transom all the time, which is why, by the way, Greenberg, it really didn't rise to a level of 
uh, interest for me because he seemed like just any other crackpot. The crackpots come out of the woodwork, right? And if you're Donald Trump, who's had 100% name ID in the United States of America when he ran for president, the first person with 100% name ID in history to run for president, you can imagine all the over the transom, I've got the breakout research you need, the calls that came in. And they would bounce around the headquarters, which, by the way, the, the campaign headquarters, the, the nerve center, was in the, uh, the soundstage of The Apprentice, which was in, um, in Trump Tower. And, uh, uh, and so they actually, there was so much of it going on that they devoted a large uh, office to all of the incoming stuff that came in. They just put it all in one room all the accusations against the Clintons. And I would say that room was probably uh, 15 feet by 15 feet, stacked to the roof, stacked to the ceiling with cases and boxes and incoming mail. With We just called it like, you know, uh, uh, the opposition research room. And nobody really, it, nobody really went through it. There was so much coming across the transom that it was crazy. So when Kirk Bell, who I've known for many years, was approached by this guy who was not, he was an American uh, citizen born and raised here, um, saying that he had access to some kinds of, that he thought he could find uh, Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, To me, it sounded interesting, but it really ran into a dark corner, like a a dead end almost immediately. Um, And, uh, uh, but it was, you know, the reason why it got my notice is because it was from one of my dearest friends. Um, uh, but imagine the size of that room and how many packages of Hillary Clinton's emails were buried in there in padded envelopes. Uh, it was an overwhelming deluge of information. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you just couldn't handle it. That's handle it because it, when, when Greenberg called in, it was like, oh, my God, you know. When Green when Greenberg was handed off to me by my friend when they called in together on the same phone, um, immediately it was kind of an eye roller, like, oh my God, another crackpot, you know, because a hundred percent of this stuff is from crackpots. Of course, if you're really into opposition research, you're gonna find a nugget or something to talk about or maybe use in an ad in the future. But I've been in so many campaigns, I can tell you the last place you want to be is in the and the information flow of opposition research, because it's mucky, it's ugly, and uh, in the end, uh, there's litigation, right? So, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I actually had totally forgotten about those conversations with Kirk until you uh, brought those up. And Kirk and I actually have been talking a lot lately because he was involved in the campaign that I supported. Uh, and We didn't even bring that up. But we totally forgot about that. Thanks for bringing that up. Walk of Fire, by the way. Uh, all you guys, I read you constantly. Uh, you're the way that my family uh, stays in touch with the investigation into the investigations that ruined all of us. So thank you for all your work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, you sharing that with us, Michael. And, and I'll tell you, you were you were one of the, uh, I guess, uh, impetuses um, for me kind of really digging in to a lot of this I'd, I've been following you know politics for most of my life and, and I remember seeing you on I, I assume it was probably Fox News talking about how you know Mueller had really just just destroyed your and your family's lives and 
I don't normally give to, to go fund me's, but I think I gave you 25 bucks or something like that. So hopefully, hopefully that, that, that kept you in your house. Helped, helped yeah, it did. Forward. You know, uh, we damn near <laughs> lost our house, Walkfire. We damn near lost our house. And uh, we were able to come in because uh, a Rush Limbaugh uh, bro- uh, talked about our family a couple of different times. Sean Hannity did. Tucker Carlson did. And we were able to pay most of our legal fees. But frankly, I'm still paying legal fees from those days. But so is J.D. Gordon, so is Carter Page, so is Roger Stone. And by the way, so is Paul Manafort. We all are. And, uh, you know, it's a manageable amount of money, and I'm, I'm working again. But, you know, you know, who's not handling it well? You know, Roger Stone. Roger Stone, is, they're still after his ass. And uh, he can't make an honest living because, you know, people are afraid to be in his phone when the FBI is following him everywhere he goes. And Roger Stone, when I met him, he was a master of the universe. I was his driver when I was Donald Trump's driver. I was The reason I drove Donald Trump around is because I was Roger Stone's driver. He was a master of the universe, a multimillionaire, and they have destroyed him. And, you know, a lot of these people can't make an honest living. You know, Carter Page, who's brilliant. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I've heard people say Carter Page is a little goofy here and there, and I kind of, like, didn't know him. I saw him on the news. I didn't know what to think of him. I've got to be really good friends with Carter Page. God bless Carter Page. That guy's the nicest guy you ever met. I've never heard a, a, a negative thing out of his mouth. You know, people. the reason people think Carter Page is weird is because he's optimistic, even in the face of all this crap. But he, he just finally got a good job. He's, he's a senior advisor to the... Uh, uh, to the statewide elected official in Texas in charge of agriculture. He's, and he's a great economist. He's working for him. J.D. Gordon's making a living, but he's a retired Navy commander. He should be doing gangbusters. He's just kind of moving along. A uh, Waleed Ferris, God bless him and his wife. They went through so much. Uh, you know, while Durham is out there futzing around, there are people who just can't put food on their table anymore. I mean, I love my friends. All we've all become we we call ourselves the remnants. You know, uh, the story of the Israelites in the desert and those who survived uh, their, the forty years came back and they called themselves the remnants. We all call you know, we're the remnants of what went down, and we're like the Walking Dead. A lot of us. I'm doing pretty well. My family and I are doing all right, but some people are really suffering, and. Uh, None of us think that Durham is doing right by us. Really, I'm going to tell you what, though. Every single one of us, including Paul Manafort, who, by the way, people on this call don't know, Paul Manafort's book, some of that book comes from this corner of the of Twitter. I mean, all of us are looking to you guys for, for the information we need because we're not getting it anywhere else. We're not getting justice, I'll tell you that. George Carlin was right, you know. You all heard it before. This whole American justice system, it's just us. And we're just not among them. You know? Hey, Michael, if uh, Carter or any of your friends ever want to come into spaces, uh, bring them out. We'd love to have them. I think that'd be fantastic. You know, J.D. Gordon is trying to move his life on. Roger would probably do it for sure. He's he's trying to scream to the top, the highest, you know, you know lamppost, you know, Paul is out selling a book now. It's a great book, and he loves talking to people. You could probably have Paul Manafort on one of your spaces. I could organize that. He'd love to do it. But Carter, 
Carter's in, a, in, in an interesting place, you know, because he's trying to litigate, trying to defend truth, trying to figure out what's going on in this world. And uh, I tried to invite him, by the way, I mean, I don't really want this in the news or nothing, but I tried to invite him for dinner with me at Mar-a-Lago, you know, because he happened to be in the area. And Carter wouldn't come, you know, because he's like, you know, I really don't want to walk up to the president and say hello to him. You know, Carter hasn't seen him personally since all of this started. I don't really want to walk up to the president and come to him as someone who is wounded and floundering in the water. He says, when I want to see President Trump, I want to be victorious. And he's on that position too, you know? He's like, nah, no thanks. I'm going to win first and then I'll come out. Isn't that strange, huh? What a way to live. Well, that's hey, cool uh, stuff. Yeah. Mr. Sorry, Pluto, what, what are your thoughts on, so there's all these leaks and stuff that have come out of the, uh, the uh, judiciary. And I'm curious if you, given your history, you know, in knowledge of the administration previously, and of course in Mar-a-Lago, you know, where they were, you know, um, illegally monitoring um, then candidate Trump, and then of course, President Trump in the White House. Um, do you feel like some of this stuff is... Um, maybe not clerks or activists that are working there, but more um, the, quote, uh, deep state or intel sector that's been um, illegally monitoring the the judicial uh, branches and then leaking stuff out? I don't really know enough about it uh, to speak authoritatively, uh, but I have zero, absolutely less than zero trust in, 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 in the United States government, which is a horrible thing for me to say as someone who, you know, when the FBI would call me in the past and, you know, they've been, I've intersected with them over the years, many times having been in Russia for so many years, I thought it was my, you know, patriotic duty to, to talk to them about anything they wanted to know. You know, a- anytime the CIA ever contacted me, I was trying to be as helpful as possible. And I think the national security apparatus in the United States is broken. And, and I think in many ways, unfixable. If the FBI came to my door today, I'd hand them my lawyer's business card and tell them to be on their way. If if a CIA agent was on fire across the street uh, from where I was having lunch, I wouldn't put down a fork to go across the street and put them out if they were on fire. I have zero trust in the United States government national security sector. I think they're all deeply involved in all of this through many different angles. I saw some of it growing out of the octopus of the arms of the national security apparatus that was, you know, deployed uh, after the wall fell in in, in the Russian Federation. I was there on site for all that. Uh, These guys have grown out of control. Uh, You know, in the end, we have to bust up this gang. If we don't bust up this gang, there's really nothing left for the rest of us to vote for. How do we do it? Uh, Oh... Listen, I'll tell you what, I know, I mean, I was quoted today in a story in uh, Rolling Stone. Uh, They wrote a negative story about Donald Trump saying he wants to uh, drain the swamp of the National Archives. And they asked me, they said, is Donald Trump going to go after the National Archives? Did he tell you that? I said, no, he never told me that. Uh, But he told me he's going to he's going to clean house. And if he's going to clean house, he better start at the National Archives. 
because those people are rotten. It's disordered all the way to the core. I think I said something like, the barn is always better if you clean out all the rats. And the problem we have is the rats outnumber the people now. So um, I think if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be Donald Trump. If Donald Trump runs, I'm going to run with him, right? We all should, because this needs to be cleaned out. But I do believe there's people out there. I live in Florida. My governor, he seems to understand that there needs to be house cleaning. So I think it's in store, no matter who's elected. I just think Donald Trump would clean it out with a lot more personality. Hey, hey Mike, I got a question. Do you, do you think privatization of just national security is, is an issue? You know, you see that happening all over the world. You see it in Russia, uh, where some of the most effective fighting they're having on the Ukrainian battlefield is the WAG uh, mercenaries. You know, I, 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 I think so much of the American national security effort has been uh, offloaded to uh, private contractors now where it's almost impossible to tell the difference between the two of them. And there's also, of course, the one thing we never talk about is how they go back and forth between the private contractors and the the national security enterprises, you know, the revolving door is spinning, you know, just like the revolving door is spinning from the vaccine manufacturers to HHS. Our government is, is like that from the, to its core. Would you classify, um, fusion GPS as a government contractor? No doubt. No doubt. Uh, the fact, the, the, the comedy of it all is, is and now we all see, I mean, especially because of the work of this corner, that the fusion GPS work was hilariously comedically terrible. I mean, it was some of the worst scholarship, the worst intelligence ever assembled. If any of these people involved in this ever work again, then then what kind of a world do we live in? I mean, it was terrible. So, yeah, so, I think they're a government contractor, and I think that they're doing work for the government today. So, so what we're seeing, in my opinion, I, you know, I'm just—it's an opinion, uh, somewhat informed, because I've been paying attention for a long time. <clears throat> but you, if you look at Sussman, he's connected to the intelligence community. You look at Jaffe; he's clearly a government contractor, private or otherwise. Um, that that makes these guys very difficult to go after. It is. It is. It goes all the way back to the days sitting in uh, the, the the American embassy in Moscow in, in the conference room uh, for the weekly meeting of all the USAID contractors. And there is the CIA station chief sitting there with us. I mean, that was probably in my mind, that was 1995. That was when they were first starting to, you know, you know, darn the thread right to to wind it all up and they started weaving it uh, during all those years of the the aid work uh and here we are with danchenko in the middle of everything in the middle of everything i i have a if you don't mind i have a very specific question about him and it's pretty direct just, I just i just think it's the only way i can fully understand it and there's a blurring of lines you know fbi confidential uh, <clears throat> informant um, is it possible he was recruited by the CIA and somehow 
How does that work? I, I, not that you're an expert in this, but you seem to have a great understanding of how certain things happen. And, you know, uh, and another well, case. There, there, uh, when, when, you're, when you're a source for the federal government, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, the first level of source is uh, they ask you if you're okay, the first couple of times they interview you there. They talk to you as if, you know, like, OK, we'll have coffee and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then later on, they come to you and they say, um, we'd like to formalize this relationship. And they read you a statement uh, from a piece of paper and ask you to agree along, the, you know, a couple of questions. And you become, you know, hocus pocus, nothing signed, a, uh, a, a source. And a confidential human source is something where you actually have to sign paperwork. And all, not all confidential human sources are paid. Um, but when you're paid, you're considered to be very high end. The vast majority of the sources of the United States national security apparatus are unpaid. I, I have to believe 80% of them are. So for Danchenko to rise to the level of being paid and to be on the payroll for years, um, it's it's highly unusual. He signed paperwork to do it. There was an outline contract for him to understand exactly what his re- his responsibilities were. It's very official. Could could he also be a source for the CIA without the FBI's knowledge? Sure, sure, but it's unusual. I think one of the most frustrating things was like you look at Halper what he did to Svetlana Lakova. And she tried to sue him. She tried to appeal it. And you just see, like, you guys, the victims of all this, aren't getting justice anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the you know, you know, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, um, after what my family went through, and then and then what we, I, you know, our family went through at, during the COVID response, all the accusations against us, and then the cancer that I went through. Um, I, I, there was a time when I had given up. I actually had stopped eating and drinking. I hadn't done it for a week. I hadn't had anything for a week. And my wife, it was uh, Thanksgiving of 2020. And my wife took me to the hospital and said that he hasn't, he doesn't seem to be, you know, you know, eating or drinking. And they admitted me the night before Thanksgiving. And I basically had just given up. I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't, I, I, I checked my life insurance. The cancer was killing me. I didn't, I, I figured my family was better off without me. Um, you know, I, I had my own conversations with God and I turned it around and my family and I are doing fine. I have no cancer. But I can tell you this, every single one of us, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, J.D. Gordon, Carter Page, Waleed Ferris, and I can go on and on. There are over a dozen of us. We have all had our conversations with God because there is no fairness and there is no justice. So the only thing really left is your family and your faith because you're never going to get what is due to you. It's just never going to happen. And the Durham investigation, you know, it's another example. 
Oh, uh, you just kind of move on. You know, it's funny because my best friend, Roger Stone, is really, he's tense about all this. He's pretty uptight. You know, he's, he's trying, he's, you know, found the Lord and he's trying to get right. But he's, you know, they don't leave him alone. He's terribly harassed. He's wound up tight. Paul Manafort, he's so zen you can't believe it. It's like he's been in ashram for the last five years. That guy is totally zen. People handle it differently. But we've all had our conversation with God. Because we know in the end, there just is absolutely no justice. Yeah, I just, I think for Undead Foya, for giving you guys a chance, I think that's the biggest thing, that this forum gives the victims a chance to... How? No, that I, I'm we still care perplexed about you guys. as a as an opposition researcher um, in my past. I'm still perplexed on how it was legal for Fusion um, GPS to hi- hire an a foreign spy, foreign entity to conduct campaign research to impact our presidential election. To me. That was a clear violation of federal law. Yeah, yeah. There's, there, there is justice. In the end, you know, opposition research is done by law firms for a reason. It's to be, the table. You know, the different, you know, four or five different, uh, you know, bumpers before they sunk the ball at Fusion GPS. This was always designed to avoid scrutiny of uh, the federal government. But indeed, we know now that the federal government has no interest in scrutiny. So really, um, this is our nation. This is how we live now. Uh, This is us. You know, Um, I remember when, 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 uh, when my, when my interrogations were over, I told my attorney, you know, there was this one time I was on the COVID task force and I brought my, my phone you have to check your phone into a honeycomb of of uh, a warren of hole you know cubby holes for your phone when you walk in the white house and you check it in you got a key you take your key and you go out and i left the white house a little faster than i should have because i had to run back and get something for the president and i went to my cubby hole and i turned the key and i opened it up and there's no phone and i was there with another guy from the white house and i said my phone's gone how weird is that and he said, I, I'm, well, I don't know, you know. So I said, no, call my phone. I had already locked the cubbyhole up again. Call my phone. And he called my phone, and I heard I have a Jerry Garcia guitar riff as my ring. And uh, I heard Jerry Garcia playing the Grateful Dead behind the warren of cubbyholes. I'm like, what the hell is this, right? So I, I step back, and I tell my buddy, I said, ring it again. I open the cubbyhole, and there's my phone. So long we were on the barn to say, when all of this was over, I told my lawyer, I'm going to get a new computer and a new phone. Too many people have been inside my phone. Believe me, when I was at the more, uh, the Mueller investigation, they had my phone for four hours. And my lawyer told me, why would you do that? I said, what do you mean? He said, you get a new phone, you get a new computer. You're just being provocative. You're, they're going to think you're trying to, to do something illegal. So I'm supposed to sit here with my old phone and my own old computer because it's going to piss off the people who are inside my devices illegally? 
This is the world we live in. <laughs> and that's why I have an old phone. Hey, Mike, I, I have a question for you. I, and I follow you and I've, I've enjoyed your, your time on Twitter. Um, you talked about how they would just go up to somebody and find a source. My question to you is, let's, let's go back to the 80s. And let's go back to when um, tech was just taking off Sperry, Burroughs, ultimately Unisys, and the work they were doing in Europe. I'm curious, because if you look at those companies now, they're basically nothing. And you talked about how they paid them. These were executives that were within those companies that made a lot of money. And today they're, they're basically nothing. Were these vessels? What the hell? I, I, don't, really, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, but I can tell you in the 80s when I was in Central America working with the Contras, um, the technology had almost nothing to do with what we were doing. And when we when these guys Unisys and Wang and all these big companies were around and they were making their wheels and deals with the government, the on the ground stuff that was happening in national security, there was no technology component to it. It's now yeah, all the way out of being it, it, It's now all the way at the edge of, of intelligence. Technology is everywhere. But I don't know what these big companies, what their role or how they caught up on all of this. Uh, later in time but back then they weren't i mean sperry was sperry was holding up by a, a very slim margin and then burroughs had enough to get out of detroit and then once they combined and they landed in philadelphia and then it was um it was a firm out of new york lazard that was out actually operating out of france and these fuckers just i mean it was like the money it was being spent was absurd. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm a young man and I watched an older man make a lot of money really fast. And so I'm always curious because I've never, I've never gotten a story out of it. And I've never heard. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the young. answer. And I, in those days, I was busy kicking uh, weapons out the, the, the ass end of a, of a, of an airplane over the battlefield in Nicaragua. I, I didn't see any computers anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. No, I was just, just curious. I appreciate it. Thank you for, for talking to me. Hey, guys, I'm going to have to go. My uh, my, my, my morning starts early, early tomorrow. Thanks for hosting this, and uh, uh, God bless all of you. Yeah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and taking everybody's questions. It's always nice to, to hear from you, and Appreciate you coming on. Take care, everybody. Thank love you. Have a good night. Everybody, love one another because ain't nobody going to love any of us. <laughs> and, Mike, I just want to tell you, man, as someone who's been battling cancer myself since 2020, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you are um, cancer-free, and I'm glad you uh, survived that dark moment. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I just got back uh, last uh, Tuesday um, uh, from my six-month checkup. You know, it's my first one. And uh, my doctors tell tell me that you freak out, uh, and when you come, you know, you probably know more than I do. When you come up on your six one checkup, you start freaking out. Like so, the past you know four or five weeks, I've been like, oh, you know, I can't, I don't feel well. I've got, I, I've started 
you know, psychosomatically condemning myself to, you know, a cancer death. And then I come in uh, last Tuesday and I got an absolute clean bill of health. My family and I are very happy. I wish all of you uh, the same happiness. God bless you. All right, guys. Um, I might start wrapping it up here. I, I don't know if anybody else wanted to jump in with questions or comments, but um, I was doing a little bit of a shorter chat tonight. Obviously, next week, I mean, sort of setting the stage. If you're really hoping for, an, for a conviction, um, might want to be guarded, let's just say. Um, not clear we'll, we'll be able to, you know, can't be too aggressive in our predictions, but if your your goal for next week is just to learn more about what happened, um, it should be a good week. I mean, I think we're going to learn some really interesting pieces to the to the broader story. Um, we're going to see some some trial exhibits. I was just looking. Uh, Durham filed some. Uh, he filed a four page exhibit list. I was just looking at that, um, and there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. So um, just based on that, I think. You know, there's going to be some things that we learn. Um, probably, if, you know, at least a couple things that are going to be surprising and uh, should be a good week. So, um, Walker Fire, I don't know if you were planning on going out there as well, but, um, you know, I know I know some of the guys are and uh, certainly we'll plan on doing Spaces Chats next, next week. And um, I don't know if it'll be Tuesday, but probably Wednesday for sure and maybe every night next week uh, we'll – should I get through and, and look at the transcripts and uh, break down what happened? Do, do you, uh, let me ask you before you close your space, do you foresee, you know, based, you've been following this closer than, you know, almost anybody, um, arguably anybody. Um, you, do you foresee this wrapping up after Danshenko or do you see them going after somebody larger? <laughs> That's such a good question. I, I, um, it, it's so hard to make predictions. If I, if I had to guess, I would say Durham is not done yet. And if he's not done, then yes, I, I imagine there's going to be additional indictments, and you know we'll know relatively soon. I, I imagine if we don't hear anything else about Durham before January, then he's not done, and. You know, he's going to continue his work, and the reporting from the New York Times was wrong. Um, obviously, we're going to get through this this trial. Uh, we'll have the midterm elections just after that. And then, you know, we're going to have to bite our fingernails a little bit for a couple of weeks to find out, you know, maybe he is done. And um, maybe he's got a report all written up, and um, maybe he's, he's packing it in. I mean, there's indications both ways. And it's, it's just really too hard to make a prediction um you know he he definitely signaled at various times that he's going going to pursue a bigger broader case you could look at the joint veteran conspiracy outlined um you know all the filings that were savaging rodney joffe for a full year um that would be a little bit surprising if he walked back from that um even going back to his predication statement which is almost three years ago now um you know, to have some of the filings and some of the stuff he's put out not result in another indictment uh, would be surprising to me. 
but it's really hard to make that call in the face of like the New York Times and CNN both saying, you know, um, he's done with all the grand juries and uh, Garland's pushing them, it sounds like, uh, for a report. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there, there's there's data points that, that I know about. Um, you know, we've talked about a, a few of them. There, there's, a, there's a little bit, like I, I'm not pre- pretending like I know a bunch more than any, anybody else, but there, there's a couple things that I know um, a little bit more background on than, than is public. And I, I just can't, if it's true, if, if it's right, and I, I think it is, I would be really surprised if there wasn't more indictments. But who knows? Like I said, it's just too hard. So rambling. I don't think so. Is is I listened to a space previous. This is some time back, and I think you had hosted it. And there was a gal who was a really smart um, lawyer that was I can't remember her name. Um, and they talked Leslie, to, probably. Yeah, it was Leslie. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. And they were talked about how Joff, um, Joffe had um, positioned himself in kind of almost like a um, multiple firewalls to prevent him from being directly attached and that may prevent be why he's not been prosecuted yet or indicted i should say yet um it, it, do you still believe that or i mean i don't you know do you what is your take on that that joffy's been insulated yeah I, I can't remember exactly how she explained it but she explained it like there was multiple entities the way the contracts were written or something of the sort that would make it difficult to get a conviction against him. If I heard yeah, it, if I heard it right. I do remember that conversation. I think that was really specific to that might have been specific to the um uh executive office building data in which Joffe had access under a contract to actually look at that data um to monitor it for um adversaries and then he used that access uh, to basically spy on the president. Um, and there was a discussion, and I don't know necessarily that's the same one you're referring to, but there was a discussion on the, on the chat one night where um, she had kind of talked about, you know, that's not necessarily a crime. There's certain districts, um, you know, the federal law is really not settled on it yet, where abusing access that you had, uh, legal access that you had for, um, unauthorized purposes is not necessarily a crime. Um, so for on that specific point, maybe Durham doesn't have a case, but there are other pieces for Rodney Joffe that, um, you know, Durham has kind of pointed to. And, and that's kind of the weird thing. And, and a lot of, I think a lot of the risk that Joffe could face comes down to whether Durham concludes the alpha bank data was fabricated. And, um, you know, the CIA concluded it was um, uh, manipulated, I forgot the verbiage, um, manipulated or, or um, fabricated, essentially. Um, certain other elements did, too. You know, the FBI debunked it within a day. Um, so I think in one filing, the last we had seen, Durham said they, they were still making an, an independent evaluation of whether the data was fabricated or not. Um, if Durham concludes it's fabricated then you'd have to kind of assume there might be some criminal charges, especially to the extent that they, um, and the lengths they went to push that data to the government. 
um, that would raise some red flags and maybe there, there would be a prosecution there. And then, you know, there is a piece out there about the DNC hack. And um, there is one report that I'm aware of that Joffe had a role in the attribution for the DNC hack. And, and I'm not saying there would be a criminal charge there or, or anything wrong um, as it relates to the DNC hack, but it would raise a lot of questions, right? If he's, if he's tied to alpha bank data that is, you know, manipulated and user generated, and then also had any role with the DNC hack that, that obviously just raises a lot of questions. And, and a lot of people um, might have some concerns about that. So probably over answered that question. <laughs> No, that, that's, that, that was good. Yeah, that was the conversation um, that I was listening to um, one night when you guys were having it. And yeah. I think that was the exact, the exact conversation um, that okay. they were talking about. So, Okay. Well, um, MB, Walkfire, did you guys have anything? I think I'm good. Uh, we okay. will definitely be in touch next week. Uh I'll be in DC. Uh, Fool's going to be there. Before you end, I'm going to ask one last question. Durham traveled to Italy and a couple of other countries um, that were known to be hubs of some of the spying that took place on then candidate Donald Trump and, of course, President Trump. Um, what is your what is your take on why he did those international trips? Yeah, that's another good question. Um, so I think the reporting at the time for the Italy trip centered around allegations that George Papadopoulos had made about a guy named Misud. Um, and there was a filing at one point that I think uh, Sidney Powell had, had alleged something to the fact that Durham went to Italy and he got a couple cell phones for uh, Misud. So um, I think... At least when Barr was the attorney general, there was a goal for Durham to kind of uh, look into various allegations that were floating around there and that were popular in the media so that when Durham finally wrote his report, they could say conclusively one way or the other whether somebody like Mitsud was involved or whether he was a, uh, an asset for Western intelligence or, or any of those kind of allegations that were out there. So I, I think that was the extent of his role at, in Italy. Um, there's a, a much more interesting piece out there right now. Um, I, and it, it really depends on when Durham found out um, certain things. Like um, there is a, a payment. There's, there's actually four payments totaling $2 million that were sent from the Vatican to Newstar. Um, New Star's Melbourne office, actually, and that was between 2016-2017, um, which is the subject of a fraud investigation and um, the subject of a money laundering investigation. And it's, you know, there's a lot of questions, or at least I have a lot of questions on whether that's actually tied to Russiagate or not, or whether New Star is tied both to Russiagate and some other money laundering um, crime, which... Um, which is, would be huge. I mean, it, it's just boggles the mind of, of how they could be tied to, to so many different pieces. So I don't know. I mean, if that's tied to Russiagate, then his trip to Italy could presumably 
be seeking to gather some information on, on some of those transfers perhaps. Um, but that really depends on if Durham knew then um, a little bit about Rodney Joffe or not. And, and we just don't know one way or the other. I, I think that was in late 2019 and he certainly could have known, but it, I, I can't, I can't say for sure. Um, I think Durham also went to Ukraine. He might've spoken to some people from Ukraine. Um, and I think we're, we're, um, I think the best speculation on that was probably related to Paul Manafort and um, the black book or the black ledger, which was fabricated um, and, and kind of seemed to pass through, pass to fusion GPS operatives. But I think the speculation on that is that it originated somewhere in Ukraine. Um, so that might've been what Durham was kind of looking at there. So um not sure where else Durham has gone. I, I can't remember, but um, yeah. I think that's everything. <laughs> well, thank you for filling my questions and, and allowing me to come up to speaker. So I really do appreciate it. This is a, this specifically with Durham is, is literally one of my favorite topics because when I was recovering from um, brain surgery, um, I, I was just, I had to sit and I had to be in bed rest for the election of 2020 and then seeing the post afterwards and um and Durham was something that I really was fo focusing on. Um, you know, I was hoping I just had hope, right? I had hope that some of this stuff would get removed, would get rooted out. You know what I mean? So, yeah. anyway, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming out on the call. It's always good to have you as speaker and, and hear your questions. They're always good. So, thank you for that. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up guys. Um, like I said, I mean, next week we'll be doing this probably every night. So um, don't have to go too much longer tonight. Um, definitely check out MB full Nelson next week. They'll be at the trial. Uh, Technofog, of course, will probably be the first one for anybody to get the trial transcripts and, and write those up. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll try to cover the, the trial as best we can. So I'll set a, a chat up i think tuesday or wednesday for sure and uh we'll see you guys next week so everybody have a good weekend gonna end it here thanks guys